it just becomes impossible if you don't understand the fundamentals, right? And like people, when people talk about debugging tools, sometimes they talk about like, you know, like observability tools or like, um, debuggers and that, that stuff is really great and so important and I love it. But like, if you don't understand like the fundamental concepts about how the system works, it often is really hard to make progress. Um, and the flip side is if you do, like it becomes just like so much easier, right? Cause you can think through in your head, like, okay, how should this work? Like, what are the steps here that's, that are like happening on the computer? And it like gets a lot more straightforward. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. In this episode, Guang and I speak with Julia Evans. Julia runs a programming zines business called Wizard Zines, where she creates comics about various programming concepts. She has been creating zines when she was still a software engineer at Stripe. Her zines are extremely approachable and highly educational. I've bought many of them myself and encourage you to check them out at wizardzines.com. In addition to creating zines, Julia is a prolific blogger and has around 500 posts on her blog at jvns.ca. Her blogs are another great source to learn about fundamental programming concepts. We had a lot of fun speaking with Julia for this episode. We discussed two bugs she came across at Stripe. We talk about how she identified and fixed a bug in Kubernetes Scheduler and how her understanding of TCP helped her fix a performance regression. We also cover other topics like blogging, zines, debugging, and learning new things. Please enjoy this fun conversation with the amazing Julia Evans. Julia, we are super excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I thought we would start with asking you about a word that I've only seen in the Urban Dictionary, which is also your Twitter handle, B0RK. I think Bork is the right pronunciation. Uh, and we're wondering if you could tell us the story behind how it became your Twitter handle. I think it's the normal story, which is I thought it was funny when I was 14. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. It is unique. And we all recognize you by that these days. Uh, and a lot of people also know you through your blog and your zines, uh, which personally I'm a huge fan of. Uh, and it's something we definitely want to get into. Before we go there, uh, can you tell us about your engineering career in tech and how you got into the infrastructure engineering space? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think when I started out, I had some, I, I worked on Drupal. I made websites in Drupal and then I worked, uh, at like a machine learning consultancy for a little bit, uh, where we didn't <laughs> have any clients. Um, and then after that, I, I spent, uh, some time at the Recurse Center, which is this, uh, program mm. in New York where you spend 12 weeks trying to become a better programmer. And when I was there, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do web design and I'm not going to do, um, machine learning because I kind of know something about that. And instead, I wanted to do something that I didn't know about. Um, mm. so I spent a lot of time trying to learn about operating systems and I tried to write an operating system and like, I wrote like a little oh, TCP nice. stack that was, did, that, 
it did work in an extremely limited way. It was in Python, which is the perfect <laughs> language to write a TCP stack in, yeah. <laughs> as we all know. But it sounds hard, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that hard. It was okay. The hardest part was getting it to actually send a TCP packet. Once I could send one, one packet, it was yeah. okay. <laughs> nice. Um, and, and so I started learning about the system stuff there, which previously kind of seemed uh, really uh, unapproachable to me. And I was like, oh, this is so fun. Um, and I loved it. And then I got another job doing machine learning, uh, which is not system stuff at all. Because I was like, yeah. well, my dream was to, my dream at the time was to like do machine learning at like a real company that did like use machine learning for like important things to the company. Uh, so it worked on machine learning for fraud, which was great. But then at some point I was like, but I was really excited about this like infrastructure stuff, right? Like this networking stuff. And so I ended up switching to a networking team uh, where I did that and I had a lot of fun there. Nice. Uh, so you, you were on the infrastructure team at Stripe and uh, at least if I don't remember the exact timeline, but I think sometime last year or the year before that, uh, you started a business with Zines. Um, I don't know that's if true. that's the right name, but at least the website is wizardzines.com, which I love. Uh, so we have been making zines way before then, though. Uh, so how did you come up with the idea of making zines in the first place? Um, I watched this movie called Girls to the Front, which is about zine culture, like Riot Girl and zine culture in the 90s and i thought it was really fun and it made me want to make a zine and also yeah and i think i was at i was giving a conference talk um and i thought it'd be so fun if i like wrote a zine and printed out 200 copies and gave it out to everyone at my talk i was like that would be so epic so i did it and it was really fun (laughs) it was exactly as fun (laughs) as i hoped it would be and so i ended up making a lot more zines because of that that's awesome uh so since you started a business, did you always knew you wanted to start one? Or is this something that just happened organically? I think it kind of happened. Yeah, I definitely wasn't... Like, I definitely didn't always want to start a business. <laughs> um, I think I started one, and then it worked. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll do this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was I was pretty surprised when, when it did work. Uh, well, it's it's awesome. We, we all love the zines that you make. Uh, so how's the experience been so far with running a business? I'm, I'm sure it would be very different from uh, working at a company on an infrastructure team. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. It's um, it's nice. I don't know. It, it's, it's much more low key. Um, and I definitely miss my coworkers sometimes. But it's also fun to be able to do like literally whatever I want in some sense, right? Like, so there's, <laughs> there's ups and downs. Oh, yeah, that certainly sounds nice. Uh, so let's talk about your blog a little bit. Uh, I remember reading a post where you mentioned why you started blogging when you were at Ricker Center. And we all are very thankful that you started it because we have learned so much from it. Uh, like, I, I don't come from a traditional CS background. So your blog has been a go-to resource for me to learn about a lot of the system stuff. Like, whenever I see a tweet from you that you wrote about something, I get excited in the morning saying, oh, I'm going to learn something new today. Uh so That's what I would amazing. like to know is, uh, how did you decide that you wanted to write about so fundamental concepts and systems? It's I haven't seen that to be very common, but I'm glad that you decided to do it. Mm, I think I wrote about those things because I didn't understand them myself. And I was kind of mad that, like, I think I write a lot from a place of, like, 
like a frustration almost <laughs> like because i'll be like this was so hard for me to learn and no one told me that it worked this way and like why not yeah <laughs> um and i think a lot of those things inspire that feeling of like why did no oh, one tell me and like sometimes the things are not really that complicated too you know it's just that like the information isn't out there um or it's hard to find so usually i just had a hard time and i want someone else to not have such a hard time well you have made lives of many engineers much simpler by writing all the posts that you do so thanks for doing that um uh, on top of that i would say i really admire your writing style i mean especially the way you share your thinking it very much feels like as if i'm talking to you live even if i'm reading a blog post um uh, and the way you explain things it also shows up in your zines making them so approachable uh and a lot of mm. it's very educational in the first place so how did you develop this way of writing uh, in general i don't know that's a great question um I think I don't know I like I didn't always write that way. I don't know what happened actually cuz I I have a like I have this like master thesis that I wrote on my GitHub profile somewhere and it is not <laughs> like that. Like, like <laughs> and then one sees that blah 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 blah. <laughs> it goes on like that for 80 pages, you know. Um so I I'm, I'm not sure how I got there. Like I'm happy I did, but I I wish yeah. I had a, like a pithy answer. but i guess it's at least it's possible to to learn it seems like and change it is i mean it's it i i look up to your writing style in many ways and thinking oh how can i make this simpler so that anyone reading it can just understand it uh so another question on also on your blog post is that your posts have or your blog in general has a very positive and energetic personality to it uh was that intentional when you started blogging or that just also happened organically I think when I started writing there were a lot of things like I was in a good place I like mm-hmm. I, I was at the recurse center I got to learn a lot of stuff and that's like a very positive environment anyway mm-hmm. um and so like I didn't have a lot of you know like there there wasn't I don't know that was just how I felt um I, I think like as like I I've definitely been blogging for a lot of years and mm-hmm. I mean things happen that are not positive you know in one life <laughs> <laughs> or it was career but what one thing i like about writing in a positive way is it just makes it a lot easier kind of on the internet because i feel like if you're negative people are sort of negative back at you sometimes if that makes sense and so like just being like here's something that i love um like because if i don't there's lots of things i don't like right but i don't really read posts being like here's why i hate like blah 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 <laughs> cuz i'm like well you know like whatever yeah. there's enough posts like that even though i have like lots of opinions <laughs> and i i think i just find the the conversations that that those kind of posts gen- generate to be more fun or like easier to deal with right and then no one is yelling at me being like why do you hate blah 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 because <laughs> <laughs> like they don't know <laughs> i only read about the things that i liked <laughs> well that that sounds like a good strategy uh since you mentioned about internet i mean internet is a funny place uh and <laughs> I- in your post you actually mentioned that hey you don't know something I think it's actually very brave. Uh it's something that well I'm not always comfortable saying not on the internet all the time. How did you get over that uh just barrier of saying I I don't know publicly how do you get comfortable with that? I think I feel like I I don't remember exactly. I feel like when I started doing it I didn't think about it a lot. Um like I was writing every day. Um I was writing this blog post every day and I was like, well, here's what I'm learning, you know. 
And I think that the response was pretty good. Like people liked it, you know? And so I think, I think I saw that it was okay to do that by doing it. And of course, some people will be like, Oh, why don't you know this? Right. But then also a lot of people will be like, well, people don't know things. Like, it's yeah, not. <laughs> we are not all born understanding TCP. Like, <laughs> that is I, I think it was true. also easier because I started out writing about a lot of things that a lot of people actually do not know about, you know, like I was like, Oh, I don't know how TCP works. And it's like, well, a lot of people don't know how TCP works, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. With you writing it on your post, it also makes me as a reader very comfortable just reading the post because I can relate to it so much. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this will be the last question on the blog uh, because we have a bunch more interesting things to talk about. Uh, you mentioned in your about page that you have one opinion about programming. Uh, can you share what that is and how did you come to develop that? Yeah, so I said that um, the opinion is that if you learn the fundament, if you want to do hard things, it's really important to learn the fundamentals. Um, how did I develop that? I think I find it so fun to learn the fundamentals, first of all. Um, like, um, like, like I find, like, for example, like with, with TCP, right? Like, when you're going somewhere on the internet, it's so exciting to understand like what's actually happening while you're doing that. But I, I think that the, the place where learning fundamentals really like becomes important. And, and what I saw like in my career is if you're trying to fix a bug, um, or like, which is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about bugs. Um, and when you're trying to fix like a hard bug, you can't like, it just becomes impossible if you don't understand the fundamentals. Right. And like people, when people talk about debugging tools, sometimes they talk about like, you know, like, observability tools or like um debuggers and that that stuff is really great and so important and i love it but like if you don't understand like the fundamental concepts about how the system works it often is really hard to make progress um and the flip side is if you do like it becomes just like so much easier right because you can think through in your head like okay how should this work like what are the steps here that's that are like happening on the computer and it like gets a lot more straightforward no that makes sense and all of us relate to it yeah, I would like to give Ronak some credit for smoothly transitioning that into a plug for our podcast. Well done, Ronak. So changing gears a little bit, um, one of the sort of quote-unquote misadventures we're talking about today is this post you made a little while back about why people should understand a little bit about TCP, uh, which will include a link in our show notes. So you started the post being like, hey, these are practical tips. This isn't about reading through TCP IP Illustrated. Uh, when I read that, I gave myself a pat on the back for knowing what you were talking about. Uh, I actually have the volume two uh, back there propping up my monitor. But <laughs> I only know about it because um, when I was running into a lot of networking issues at my first job trying to set up uh, data infrastructure, my, my mentor at the time was like, hey, if you want to learn about how these things work, you should just go and read these books called TCPIP Illustrated. Uh, little did I know there's three volumes and each one is like 600 pages. Yeah, I never read books. I haven't read any technical books, I, which I think it's great. For, I think it's great to read books, but I just I also think there's other ways to learn. And I I, mean, I have one book maybe that I read sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, Thanks for making me feel better about never finishing TCP IP Illustrator Volume 2. 
Um, so for people like me who don't come from a traditional CS background and have never taken a networking class, but who also want to learn more about things like networking, um, these technical books can be quite intimidating. So I was really pleasantly surprised when I came across these um, networking zines you made, um, just at how approachable they are. And can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I think that for me, I find it a lot easier to learn by looking at, um, well, by like obviously learning some basic facts, but the, the, the bite-sized networking zine is actually, is about networking tools um, and about like tools that you can use to inspect your network. And I find it a lot easier to learn by being like, okay, I want to learn about maybe TCP. I want to understand, like, for example, the other day I was trying to understand WebRTC because I was debugging a WebRTC problem with someone. Um, and I don't know, I didn't know anything about WebRTC. Um, and, but I just like, don't like reading books. Like I don't have the patience. So instead I was like, okay, let's look at, uh, some debugging output, right? Like let's set up a connection. And then it was like, oh, you have this like turn server. Um, and then you start, you can like capture, find the port for the turn server. And then you can start capturing packets like UDP packets. And then you can open up Wireshark and then you can see the UDP packets, um, that are being used to like, uh, start establishing this WebRTC connection. And I think that like trying to look at things interactively like that, that are really happening on my computer makes it feel so much more real to me. And like, I'm sure that also it's not a lie. Like sometimes things that you read like on the internet are lies, you know, or they're like not, or they're like true for someone else's computer, but not true for my computer. And it just like so much more, like it feels so much more like immediate and easy for me to understand when I can actually see like things that are happening on my computer. That's awesome. So now jumping into the post itself, um, what was the team trying to do? And what was the problem that you guys saw? Yeah, um, so we had this message queue that we were using called NSQ. Um, and the way you publish a message to NSQ is there's a local um, uh, like daemon running on every host uh, that basically like, so you send it a message and then it publishes the message to like some central place. Um and so what we were seeing was that publishing uh, a message. So the way you publish a message is you make an HTTP request, right? Where you're like post and then you send the contents of the message. So that's super simple. Um, we were doing that in Ruby. Um, and someone noticed that it was taking 40 milliseconds to send each message. And I think I'd been learning about how much time things should take on computers <laughs> around that time. And I was like, 40 milliseconds is too long for, you know, an HTTP request on localhost to a Go program, right? Like, like this should not be, like, there's no reason it needs to take this long, right? It doesn't make sense. And I think we spent some time looking at garbage collection and it was not, that was not it. You know, like the Go program seemed to be fine. I see. And then you mentioned this blog post that you saw elsewhere that gave you a clue. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I, I'd read this blog post, I think the week before, that was like, hey, sometimes if you're seeing a slow HTTP request, it might be because of like a weird problem with TCP. And I think like my manager had posted it the week before, like coincidentally. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, that probably doesn't have anything to do with me, but it would be really cool if that was the problem, right? Because it would be. Um and so I think what I did, so, so I'll explain the blog post, um, and what it said. Uh, so what it said was that you can, um, in TCP, uh, you send packets. Um, and there are two, uh, th there are a lot of different ways TCP clients and servers can be configured. Um, 
So one thing that the TCP client sometimes does is something called Nagel's algorithm. And what that means is it'll send up for the first packet. And if it doesn't, if that packet doesn't get act right away, it'll be like, oh, there's a problem with the connection. Maybe I shouldn't send the second packet just in case there's some kind of like congestion, right? So it'll wait before sending the second packet. And then on the server, there's a, an algorithm called delayed acts, which is like, if when I get the first packet, I won't act it right away because we don't want to like waste space on the network with acts or something. Um, so I'll just wait until the second packet and then act that one. Uh, so the, the, the client sends the packet and it's waiting for the act. And the, the server is like, I'm waiting to send an act. Like I'm not, yeah, yeah, I don't want to send too many acts or anything. And so they're both in this like kind of like stalemate until they time out after 40 milliseconds. And then the client just like goes ahead and sends a second packet. And this is something that's happening like inside the Linux kernel, right? Like at the OS level. Um, and so it doesn't really, and, and I guess the other part of this is that the Ruby program was sending, like the request it was sending was quite small, but because of the way the code was written, it was sending the headers and the request body, the HTTP request body in two separate packets. Um, which it didn't, like if it had just been sending it in one packet, this also wouldn't have happened. Um, so there was kind of like an interaction between like the Ruby code and the... Um, Interesting. In the post you mentioned using strace helped quite a lot. Uh, I was curious what you saw there that helped you make the connection to the blog post. Yeah, so what I saw there was you can see network packets being sent in strace, I think with maybe send message. I don't remember the exact system call. Um, but what I saw, what what would I have seen? So you see the first packet being sent. Um, and then you see the second packet being sent 40 milliseconds later. Um, yeah. And so I think, yeah, what I saw, because you can do strace-t to see timestamps. Um, I think today I would probably use TCP dump for this, but at the time I was scared of TCP dump, so I used strace. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so you see one packet being sent and then another one being sent 40 milliseconds later. And then I was like, why? <laughs> right? Like, why wait to send the second packet? Like, what's, what, what's going on? Is that true? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I, I honestly don't remember exactly what I saw. Um, but it was, it was something like that. <laughs> Got it. And why are you scared of TCP dump? I think then I was scared of TCP dump because I thought, I mean, I don't ever use it, uh, but just curious from your perspective. Yeah, so TCP dump I no longer think is scary. I love it. Um, I think it's very straightforward to use. Not very. I think it's, I wrote a zine about how to use it, uh, which is free. It's on my website. <laughs> if, if you want to not be scared of TCP dump as well. Um, um, because I was mad that it took me so long to not be scared of it. Anyway. Um, but I, I think just at first, like, it's this command line tool. There's all these network packets. It prints out, prints out things that sometimes you don't understand, you know, like all of these things about like the TCP statistics. Um, but the way I usually like to use TCP dump, which I find much easier is you can capture uh, packets with TCP dump and write them out to what's called the PCAP file. And then you can open them in Wireshark. And Wireshark I find much easier to use because it's like a graphical interface. You can see everything. You can filter things much more easily. Um, and you can also kind of do it after the fact, you know, like you have like your, your data saved and then you can analyze it more slowly or maybe with a coworker or friend, right? And be like, okay, wait, what does this mean? Um, and so I, I, I think I, I also learned that workflow, which I find a lot easier, um, than kind of trying to like use TCP dump interactively from the command line. 
you you mentioned tcp drum being scary at the time i feel a stress is also scary uh i mean i've i've used it in occasions and it's extremely helpful but i f- think it it takes a little getting used to and it's non trivial initially when you just you're seeing a bunch of system calls and it's like what is that system call do <laughs> so uh yeah. like one how did you get just better at using strace and under what circumstances have you found it to be very useful as a tool Um so I I think the real secret to using strays is to ignore system calls that you don't understand um and to develop like a sense for like what system calls you do understand for example there's the open system call which opens files right and that's like okay you know it's not scary <laughs> um and so when I'm strasing programs often what I do is all you know just like grep for open and be like I'm going to ignore everything else I just want to know what files this program is opening um or like if i'm looking at network stuff maybe i'll be like i just want to know like what it's sending and receiving and then if there's like 3 billion other like few tags like system calls that's the confusing like, one <laughs> it, it, it's a, it's okay like that's not and like often that's not the focus right so like often yeah. one, one of my favorite ways to use strace is if a program is like writing to a log file and i don't mm. know what log file and then you can just strace the program you find the file it's over you don't like it doesn't matter like all the other weird stuff it's doing you know you just need the file no that makes sense nice nice going back to the tcp issue that you guys were trying to solve so once you made the connection to the blog post did everything pretty much just work out from there on out yeah so so i mean we need to implement the solution still um so what we did what i did was i set up um this setting called tcp no delay on the client which basically turns off the waiting for acts on the client side um because the client was the thing i had the most control over um and it was also what the ha proxy web uh, blog post said to do <laughs> um and then i like made this pull request and i was like oh my god like i've never like tried to change a tcp setting before like is this going to work and like it's kind of like scary cuz like if it doesn't work i'll be embarrassed a little bit you know <laughs> um but i i did it and it, it worked and i was like oh my god i'm amazing like this is so cool <laughs> and i think the the funny thing about this bug in particular is that um i over the years since i wrote that blog post i keep on seeing people writing about it being like this thing happened to me with nagel's algorithm <laughs> like delayed accent i'm like oh yeah again and i think it's just like maybe these like these are like very common settings that interact poorly and it just keeps on happening so i feel like it's like the it wasn't like maybe a big coincidence that i'd seen that blog post it's like just that this is like a relatively common thing even though it seems like really obscure at first <laughs> <laughs> um was your team like holy crap uh you know like how how did she know what to do I mean maybe they I I think I yeah I think they were like cool good job like and I really felt like validated cuz I was so obsessed with like networking and system calls and that wasn't really my job at the time at all and I was like finally like my obsession with these weird things has paid off like <laughs> That's awesome. Um changing gears a little bit Something you emphasize quite a lot uh in your blog is the importance of learning the underlying systems that we use and rely on, which is definitely one of the core motivations that we have for starting this podcast. One challenge though sometimes is to figure out, you know, okay, when do I need to dig deep into this concept versus no, you know, I just got more tickets I need to go do. Uh do you have a rule of thumb in terms of prioritizing what to learn? Yeah. 
especially at work. Um, so I think one, one, one thing I think is important is if you're putting something into production and you're like on an SRE team, like, I don't think it's really, it really works to put things into production that you don't understand. Right. <laughs> like it's not, it's not okay. And so once uh, a long time ago, I was trying to, um, we were thinking about using Kubernetes and no one on my team knew anything about Kubernetes. Right. And so I spent a huge amount of time like trying to understand how Kubernetes networking works and just like being like, what is this thing? Like, how does it work? What's going on? Um, I spent so much time like learning about like container networking and like namespaces. And like, I think I spent weeks on it. And like in those weeks, I really accomplished nothing um, at work. Like well, I, I learned a lot. Um, but I think at, at the time, my manager understood, like, he was like, hey, like, we want to investigate using this technology. None of us know anything about it. So, like, someone needs to learn about it, you know. Um, and I think it was, like, understood that that was a good use of time. Because uh, we did end up using it, and we didn't end up needing to use all of that knowledge <laughs> to debug the problems we had. And so, like, yeah. But I, I think that you do need to be in a place where, like, that's valued, right? Which, which I think on a lot of infrastructure teams it is, uh, because people see what happens if you have systems in production that you don't understand, and they see like where it leads. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun when you get woken up in the middle of the night and something's not working, and you're like, I have no idea what to do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I can't stress enough how important it is to understand the thing you put in production. Also, I empathize spending weeks learning about container networking. By the way, you have some really good blog posts on Kubernetes and containers. And for me personally, the ones on container networking and Kubernetes uh, certificate authorities clarified so many things. And we'll link to all of these in the show notes as well. Uh, one of the posts around Kubernetes, which you have, uh, is what we want to discuss today, is on Kubernetes scheduler where you mentioned that you mm. found a bug in production. Uh, can you tell us what Kubernetes scheduler does and what was the bug that you encountered? Yeah, so I think I'll talk about the issue first because it was kind of, yeah. So we were running cron jobs on Kubernetes. Um, and so I guess part of the model of Kubernetes is you have these things called pods. Um, and it's like this declarative system where you declare a pod and you're like, hello, at CD, here's a pod. And it's like, great there's pod, but it's not running anywhere. And then, so what the scheduler does is it periodically looks at the, it, look, it looks at the pods and then it sees if one of them is not attached to a node and it's not running. And then if it's not running, it'll find somewhere to run it. And then it'll update it to say that it's running. Cool. Um, and so what, what uh, we're running these cron jobs and what running cron jobs means is that you're scheduling new pods a lot. Right. Like if you're running like a web service that where you just have some stuff running, maybe it restarts like every you know, day. But we have like many, I don't know, a lot <laughs> of <cron> jobs <laughs> that we were running all the time. Um, and so things, new things were constantly starting. And uh, so we, we'd set up this cluster and we were starting to slowly roll it out um, on some like less critical jobs. And someone on one of the teams that was operating these jobs, like that wrote the jobs, was like, hey, uh, one of these didn't run that was supposed to run. What's going on? And, and I saw that it was stuck and I kind of, I restarted the scheduler and then the pod ran. And I was like, okay, cool. 
that's fine that it's running now but yeah. why you know what happened and i think there like i really had a choice like i could have like let it go or being like maybe we should just restart the scheduler sometimes i guess right <laughs> Um, but, um, this was uh, at kind of like an early stage of rolling out the system and it needed to run jobs that were processing like a lot of money. Um, and also like when there were problems with it, it caused a lot of problems for the engineers who wrote the jobs. And I decided like, no, this isn't okay. Like, I'm not going to accept like this happening. Uh, I'm going to figure it out. Um, and so I, and I didn't know how the scheduler worked. And I think the way that I'd assumed that it worked was that it looked at every pod periodically. Like it would be like four X in pods. If pod is not running, then run it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that's what and one so would expect. I went and looked at the code. <laughs> what? Oh, I was saying that's what one would expect. <laughs> yeah, that is what one would expect. And so I looked at the code and that was not what the code did. Um, instead, what happened was that there was a queue. And that every time a new pod uh, was added, it, it would get added to the queue of things to scheduler, to, of, of things to schedule. And uh, if there was an error, st- like scheduling a pod, it would uh, add it back to the queue of things to schedule. And this makes sense because you can imagine if you're trying to run like 10 bajillion pods, you don't want to be iterating over all of them every single time, right? Like it could cause performance issues. So this is like a really reasonable performance optimization to have this like queue of things to schedule and you only actually look at the stuff that you need to, that like needs to be scheduled. And then maybe you go look at everything again, um, when you're done. And so it turns out that what had happened was one of the pods, there'd been some error when trying to schedule it. And um, so it went off the queue and then the error handling code was supposed to put it back in the queue and mm-hmm. it hadn't. Um, and so I added like maybe like one line of code or something to put it back in the queue, like on this error. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like to debug this, I, I wrote, I think I added a bunch of like console, like, or not console.log, but like, print like print statements to the scheduler and like compiled it and like ran it in production or something, like, <laughs> to find it like i did something dumb like that because <laughs> i was just uh, like so stuck and i was like look what's another print statement like oh and yeah. I, I really didn't have a plan um anyway uh so so i like compiled uh i i put in a fix and then i like compiled it and i put it in production and i saw that it fixed our problem which was great uh, and then i made an upstream pull request and it got merged and, and then, like, the problem never came back, you know, and it was done. And it was so much nicer than trying to, like, you know, because you can paper over a lot of stuff uh, yeah. in operations by restarting things. <laughs> and it was so nice yeah. to not, like, add to the stack of things that we'd papered over in that way. Oh, yeah. um, and there were other things that we did handle. Like, we had a memory leak, and I, like, could not figure out what was going on. And I just put, like, look, just restart this sometimes. <laughs> and that fixed the memory leak. <laughs> And we never, uh, I, th- I think eventually we upgraded and it went away, but uh, that, that that one seemed kind of less important to me because it wasn't a correctness issue, you know, like, mm. but yeah. this one, I was like, no, I don't, I don't know. I was mad. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I mean, the importance of not letting weird things in production just go by and actually digging and figuring out what exactly is happening to fix it for the long term. Uh, one thing which I will say is plus one to print statements. Uh I'm sure a lot of people would argue it's not the best way to go about it. I can actually relate to it because a few months back, I did that exact thing to Kubelet, compiled it, run it on a node to debug an issue. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, I couldn't figure out anything else throughout the like stagrams I was getting. I was like, this is the best way. And well, we found the problem. It was our mistake, not a Kubernetes issue, but it worked. Uh, so plus one to print statements. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do, and like adding a statement <laughs> is not that invasive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the specific issue that you mentioned, uh, how many was it happening too frequently? By the way, like were you seeing too many pods ending up in pending state? It was not happening that frequently, no. Um, which was good in some sense, but and it was like a nice example of why it's good to jump on stuff that isn't really a big deal, you know. Because this was not like an incident, but it would have been an incident like in the future, you know, yeah. like, yeah. um, it's the kind of thing that like, you're like, if I don't deal with this now, I'm going to get paged in the middle of the night and <laughs> yes. people are going to be really mad in like eight months, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and sense. so I think I wrote like a whole post mortem about it too. Like be like, this is like what happened. Like here's, um, just to show like w- the kinds of things that. Because I think this was like one of the first Kubernetes issues we had. And I just wanted to show people like, you know, these are the kinds of problems we're running into. And like, this is what we need to understand about the system. Uh, so that when there are real problems in the future, we're like better equipped to kind of start dealing with them. Yeah, that, make, that makes total sense. Uh, so you mentioned reading the Kubernetes scheduler code to actually figure out how it works, uh, which is the right uh way to figure something out but also navigating a huge code base which is unfamiliar and something like kubernetes can be overwhelming so what practices have you found useful when navigating such a code base i feel like a lot of crap you know (laughs) (laughs) um like like a lot of looking for specific error messages. Cause I was getting, I think I was seeing some weird error message in the log that was correlated with the error. So I was like, okay, that error message is related. So I think I tracked down like the code path that led to that error message and I tried to like think about it. Um, and like, what else is there? I also think that understanding kind of the arch- overall architecture of the system is important because with Kubernetes, um, at least at that time, and I'm sure now too, the components are kind of, are like independent of each other. They like, they run independently. So I knew that like the cron job controller was like a different piece of code that didn't like only interacted with the scheduler sort of through etcd. Um, so I knew that I only really needed to worry about the code in like kind of the set scheduler subtree of the Kubernetes, of Kubernetes. And I understood the, the overall system well enough to be like 100% sure that it was a problem with the scheduler. So I, I didn't like, because it's it sucks if you get like kind of distracted and you're like oh maybe it's in this component or maybe it's in this component like if you can tell from your model of the system like okay the problem is here like even if here is kind of big <laughs> then at least like you can forget about all the other stuff you know yeah no th- that makes sense narrowing down where the problem is and anyone running software in production can attest that uh, debugging is a very important skill because things break almost all the time. Sometimes we are aware, sometimes we are not. Uh, and I loved yeah. your debugging scene. Uh, so where, what are some of the debugging practices you found to be useful? And did you pick up most of them at the job or was it something else? Mm, so what are the debugging practices that are useful? I think an important debugging practice is the practice of not giving up. Mm. Uh, which is I, I feel like one of the <laughs> hardest ones for me sometimes like especially if I'm in the middle of a problem and I'm like 
why? Like, maybe if I just run the same code again, it'll work. Like, maybe it'll just go away. Like, you know, like, it's, I find it still easy to succumb to kind of this, this, like, magical thinking of, like, oh, maybe this problem will just disappear if I pretend it's not happening. <laughs> um, so just, like, like <laughs> acknowledging, like, acknowledge that there's a problem and, like, believe in yourself that you can fix it or that you can find out. Um, and then I, I think, like, what believing in yourself that you can fix it means is that, like, just, like, trying to find more information, like, being like, okay, what information am I missing? And, like, how could I get it, right? And I think it's, it, like, that's not, that's not easy to do, right? Is to try to, like, A, like, notice what information you're missing and B, like, figure out how to get it. Because sometimes the answer is, like, compile this thing. And, like, like, sometimes <laughs> getting it takes a long time and you're like, yes. is it worth it? Like, um, but it's often worth it, like, usually worth it to get more information, um, also like talking to someone about like, Hey, I'm in this situation. What, like, just like what more, like, how could I collect more information about this? Like what questions could I ask about what the system is doing? Um, and yeah, yeah. Cause that's all it is, you know, is like collect information. And then eventually once you have enough information, you understand what's happening. Uh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, I think for me, debugging gets like emotional sometimes. Um, I try to catch myself when I get stuck in this loop of asking myself, wait, but you know, this should work, but why doesn't it actually work? And then just really stop that thinking and be more matter of fact. Like, um, hey, you know, I've checked A, B, C, I haven't done D, even though that seems obvious, but let's just do that. Uh, but, but yeah, I think just not giving up is hard, but really important. Yeah. It's so emotional. Like, it's so stressful sometimes. And it's like, I don't know, I find it a really intense process, especially when it's a really complicated system that you're trying to reason through. And like, there's so many things in your brain. And like, sometimes there's pressure from other people. Like, um, and I, th I think it's important to acknowledge that it's kind of an emotional process and to be like, okay, let's calm down. <laughs> yeah, and it's a range of emotions. I mean, starts with some frustration, uh, maybe gets stressful at times. Uh, but debugging can also be a lot of fun. I mean, I know I have learned the most about a system when it's not working the way it is supposed to. And when you actually don't mm. give up and eventually solve the problem, it is so gratifying that you were able to get through all of that and fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels so good. And then I think that really helps feed into like future problems because then you can be like, okay, this is really hard and I have no idea what's going on. But remember when I solved that really like hard <laughs> bug that other time and it took five days <laughs> and I got it and it was amazing and like this is going to be like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think you can like hold on to those the, those things after they can bring you forward in future bugs. <laughs> um, to wrap up. I saw on your blog that you've been looking into autoencoders and using it to cluster faces, um, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I, I'm curious how you're picking new topics to explore now that you have a lot more uh, freedom and control over your time. Um, so I think the autoencoder neural network thing is like, I was just mad that I don't understand what's going on with neural networks, like, at all. And so I was like, let's do a little, like, fun project to try to understand. Because I, I wrote this, um, I, I read this paper, like, four or five years ago that was about how to trick neural networks. Um, like, how to trick, like, an image recognition algorithm into being, like, thinking, like, a panda is a vulture or something. Like, you can take an image of a panda and, like, modify it a little bit to convince it that it's a vulture. Um, 
And yeah, yeah, you just change the pixels a little bit, like by like 0.01 or something. Um, and then you can trick it into thinking it's any other animal you want. Anyway, I like found that so cool at the time, but I still came away from that having like really feeling like I didn't understand anything about these neural networks. And I don't know, I kind of, I think a lot of us want to know what's going on. Uh, so and just, just trying to understand like, you know, 5% more for myself. Cool. Um, so the fun question that we like to ask is what was the last tool that you discovered and really liked? Uh, I think the thing I'm learning right now that I'm really into is Rails, uh, which I'm finding really fun. Uh, and it's really different from, like, usually I like things that are, like, very explicit and, like, where you know where everything is coming from. And Rails is really the opposite of that. But I'm having a lot of fun with it anyway. And it's nice. And it's nice that it's, like, such an old technology, you know. Like, like I was watching DHH's video about it from, like, whatever, 12 years ago, like, 2008. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> um, so what uh what, what websites are you building um right now i'm building a website to um that gives you a virtual machine uh like like um an aws instance or something and is like something is wrong on this computer like figure out or it, it tells you like something specific that's wrong and then you have to like figure out what it is um and so it's like a pretty simple website um, cause it's probably more about like designing like problems to show to people, um, that are fun. But I'm, you also need to like let people log in, like blah, 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 and, uh, like manage the instances. So yeah, so I'm running a, a, a website and I'm using Ruby on Rails and I'm really having a fun time. Oh, I would say that's actually a really cool idea. It reminds me of something, uh, we used to do at one point like wheel of misfortune i think austin came <laughs> up with that term <laughs> where we would like break something intentionally on a system and like give each other a problem to figure out yeah yeah that's so fun like <laughs> it's it's good when you can do it in a controlled environment <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because so many of these things, like, it's so stressful to find it out, like, during a production in incident to learn this stuff or to, like, learn some of the tools. Like, you don't want to be learning about S-Trace for the first time, like, when you're <laughs> trying to, like, you know, when, like, the site is down. Like, it sucks. And so, but it's, like, it can be so fun to, like, actually deal with these problems if there's not that stress. And so I wanted to come up with, like, a more fun environment for learning about some of the stuff that you learn during real incidents. Nice. Uh, I'm looking forward to when you release that website. And thank you so much for taking the time, Julia. It has been awesome talking to you. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.